This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today is Friday, November 17th, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we are going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film staff writer and box office expert, Ryan Scott. Hey, hey, everyone. How's it going? Wow, I get expert this time instead of analyst. Well, wow. you know, I, I swap back and forth between. I feel like you're, you've uh, you've earned it at this point, Ryan. You write enough stuff about a box office <laughs> and slash film. Um, but we're actually not going to be talking about box office today. We're just going to be talking about some news stuff, and then we'll get into an interview in the back half of the show. Um, but I wanted to kick things off today by talking about uh, maybe the biggest news story of this week, which is that um, Marvel's Fantastic Four movie has cast Pedro Pascal as Reed Richards slash Mr. Fantastic. Um, and I was curious what you think about this, Ryan, because you're more of a comic guy than I am. And um, Pedro Pascal is uh, is an interesting choice for this role. I, I've seen that it's a fairly divisive choice online. I've seen a lot of people be like, hell yeah, the MCU is saved. And then a lot of people being like, oh, Pedro, no, <laughs> not not like this, not this role or whatever. So where do you fall on this? Um, look, I, I think Pedro's fantastic. Um, I think the big thing, what what fascinates me the most is that, uh, I'm not typically privy to like insider stuff, but this is one of those few situations where just because of some people I know, I was kind of sort of in the loop on this whole thing. And, uh, it's crazy. It seemed like at some point they had talked to every single actor, like, at the A-list who could possibly fit this bill to take the role. Yeah, Um, the the rumors were, I mean, John Krasinski for a long time, obviously he popped up in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, but Adam Driver, Jake Gyllenhaal, and Matt Smith were like the real big names that were once rumored to play this role. And 
Adam Driver was the one that it seemed like they wanted bad. Like he seemed like the one they wanted the most and, and to a point where they'd circled back to him multiple times. Um, I, but anyway, I, you know, so I think Pedro is a good choice, but it's just crazy that they eventually got to him. Like he's one of those guys where it seems like if they wanted him, maybe they would have reached out to him sooner. I don't know. The Jake Gyllenhaal one is the weirdest one, of course, just because of, you know, the, the Spider-Man far from home of it all. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I think the big concern, and this has been a concern as reported in some of the trades as well, is that um, Pedro is busy. Uh, you know, he's got the last of us season two Mando season four, but at this point he's hardly present for Mando because mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, the joke I made is that we're never ever seeing Mando with his helmet off again. Um, you know, cause like Pedro's becoming that busy. Like he's just not, you know, so I don't know. And the other thing is, let's not forget that Dave Filoni's working on a star Wars movie that's going to take place in the Mandoverse, and you would expect him to be a part of that. So um, you know, assuming they can get the scheduling right, I, I think it's a reasonable, it's a good choice. Uh, Pedro's a good actor and it's an interesting choice. Like it, it, it's, it's not like the most obvious guy for the role. So, um, yeah, yeah. I think he also is attached to star in the new movie from, uh, Zach Kreger, the guy who made Barbarian. I want to say that movie's called yep. like Weapon or Weapons. It's or called something? Weapons. Okay. Yep, yeah. It's called Weapons. So, but I imagine that my guess on that is even though like Krieger's going to get more money to make that movie, I would still guess it would be like a mid budget movie. And so you're probably looking at, you know, a 30, probably like a month long shoot would be my guess. Like, I don't, you know, I don't know for sure, but so that might not be like the most time intensive thing. Whereas like if you're filming Mando, that's months, even if he's just doing voiceover, if you're doing last of Us season two, that's months, you know? So, so yeah, but it, but that is something to consider for sure. He's a busy dude. Yeah. Um, so man, there's so much about last of Us season two that I want to talk about that. I, I can't. Um, so well, well, I I don't want to, um, yeah, we'll, we'll just leave that there. But uh, okay, so so I want to ask you about this idea of Pedro Pascal being a risk for this character. You mentioned that he's like an unconventional choice. And like, obviously, this role has previously been played, uh, I think, well, technically three times if you count, I was going to say twice, but technically three times if you count Roger Corman's like mid 90s. Uh, and and I mean, it looks, it does kind of count, you know, yeah. like you got to, you know. <laughs> so, so this role of Mr. Fantastic, who's the, the leader, the patriarch of the um, Fantastic Four, like the sort of leader of the group, uh, he has historically been, been played by a white guy and casting him, you know, as a person of color is something that like, you know, uh, colorblind casting has been something that the superhero, um, I don't really like calling it the superhero genre, but superhero movies, I guess, superhero cinema, whatever, whatever term you want to use, have been employing that for a long time. This this idea of just like, you know, it doesn't matter about being um, as uh, strict in terms of like what people look like. It's more about the essence of the character and things like that. But I was just curious, Ryan, the idea of like Pedro Pascal being a risk for um, being at risk for overexposure because like, you know, this guy was in Game of Thrones. He was in, as you mentioned, The Mandalorian. He was in The Last of Us. He was also in the DC universe, let us not forget. He was the villain of Wonder Woman 1984. Um, and now he's, going to marvel like he he's become one of the preeminent franchise actors of the 21st century um and i don't really think of him that way but when you lay it all out that's kind of you know it's it's indisputable in a way but i was i was curious about the idea of overexposure and what you think about that because like he has uh, attached himself to these properties that a lot of people have seen 
no, uh, because I think the thing Game of Thrones he had, li my understanding is I never got that far in Game of Thrones, but he had like lim a somewhat limited role in Game of Thrones, um, and that it was, was a kind great of great supporting turn, Ryan. Really, really good. I highly recommend. But uh, I know you're probably not going to watch it, but that's fine. We can move on. <laughs> no, no, but sure. Well, let me be clear about the Game of Thrones thing. I watched all of season one and didn't get hooked, and I just didn't care beyond that. But anyway, okay, gotcha. Um, but okay, so then you look at something like he was in um, Unbearable Way to Mass a Talent with Nicolas Cage. Love the movie, but that did not do like super big business. Right. Um, uh, Mando again, yes, he's associated with that, but you're not actually seeing him a lot mm -hmm. in that. So, so I think the thing is like you're not seeing him in these big star making turns. The, the, in some ways, this would be what other than The Last of Us, this would be one of the first things that where you're going to see him, his face leading a movie. You know what I mean? So, so I don't think that we're at risk of that yet. Like, okay. I, and and I and I just think that on like a blockbuster level, like outside of big TV stuff, you haven't seen him in a movie that way. And I do think even though media sort of blends together now, I do think there is a bit of a difference there. Okay. Um, so no, I wouldn't say no there. Now you obviously could run a risk. I think Jennifer Lawrence kind of ran into that wall at one point. Sure. Yeah. You, yeah, could happen, but I don't think we're there yet. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, so yeah, like I guess, is there anything, you know, we, we don't know who else is going to be playing the rest of uh, Marvel's so-called first family, the, the rest of the uh, Fantastic Four. You've got Sue Storm as the Invisible Woman, Johnny Storm as the Human Torch, and Ben Grimm as the Thing. So those roles have not been announced yet or, or uh, even like, you know, tipped in the same way that, that we did. Um but uh, I was curious about like what you think this, if anything, this signals for like the type of project Fantastic Four might be, you know, with with um, uh, Pedro Pascal in the lead role. Does that sort of change your perception at all of what Marvel might be doing with this uh, with this property? A little bit, actually, uh, like because I felt like, you know, you, when you were looking at like some of the other guys they were looking at, they're looking at like these A-list square jaw, you know, like sort of like a little more typical leading man type guys for, for Reed Richards. And I think going with Pedro, like implies, and also like, let's be clear, like, you know, generally speaking in the comics, like uh, Reed Richards is like a white dude, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, so you're not getting that with, with, and with, but I, I also don't think that matters, but that is, you know, sort of worth pointing out. Um, so I, I think when it looked like, they couldn't like knock A-listers out of the park for this one. Cause I think that's what they were trying to do. They kind of went like a more, let's get the more interesting up and comer actors or like people that are on the precipice of the A-list that we can get. Mm -hmm. Because I think like when you were looking at like Adam driver, there were those Margot Robbie rumors. Like then you were talking about like a straight up A-list down the line cast, but I don't think that's what they're doing now. So yeah. I think the project is probably taking a bit of a different shape and that's more interesting to me. Like the fantastic four are by no means my favorite characters in Marvel. Like I've never loved them that much, but they have a, I like them more as supporting and I like the villains they bring and I like what they open up. So I'm, I, I, I'm curious to see how that all shapes out. Yeah. Know, especially I mean, because the doctor doom of it all. Right. Yeah. I was just going to say, I'm very, very curious to see who they cast. I'm, I'm more interested in casting and who they cast as Dr. Doom than I am. Honestly, did you see the recent rumor floating around in that? Was it, uh, was it Mads Mikkelsen? They said? Yeah. Who was obviously the villain in Dr. Strange, but if the Jake Gyllenhaal rumors were true and I'm pretty inclined to believe they were, um, they don't seem to care about that because of the multiverse. They can write it off as multiverse crap at this point and just say like, you know, hey, you know, uh, and like, let's be clear, if Mads Mikkelsen hadn't been in Doctor Strange, that would be like home run casting. I think. 
Yeah, I mean, again, there's no like validity to that Mads Mikkelsen thing. We uh, slash film sources have confirmed the Pedro Pascal thing, so that's that's much more. Um, yeah, yeah, mind, so. but just more as like an interesting talking point if they are getting, you know, if they are going to truly move on from Kang and, and pivot to Doctor Doom. You know. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Uh, Avengers The Kang Dynasty is this movie that's looming off in the distance. I think it was going to be 2025 is when it might be scheduled for, something like that. And um, th that film has just lost its director. Shang-Chi director Destin Daniel Cretton had been hired to direct that movie, and he has officially exited the director's chair for that film. Um, he actually is still involved with Marvel. I think one of the reports said that he still like actually has some sort of overall deal with Marvel. He is going to be... Um, like just doubling down on his work on Wonder Man, which is the show that uh, is going to be on Disney Plus that is supposed to be part of that um, Marvel Spotlight banner that they launched uh, or are going to be launching with uh, the launch of Echo, which is like we talked about on the show a little bit. It's supposed to be like this this idea that you don't necessarily have to do a ton of homework and it's going to be more of an isolated type of thing. Um, I was surprised, honestly, to read that Destin Daniel Cretton is going to be, you know, walking away from this movie in order to essentially spend more time on Wonder Man, because I, I had heard the same rumors that you had that I think you mentioned on a previous episode of the show that maybe Wonder Man might get canned altogether um, because the, the MCU is, uh, I guess, contracting might be a word in, in the wake of, uh, of the Marvel box, box office and, and just all of the um, tumultuous stuff that they've been enduring over the past couple of years. Um, but it seems like uh, Wonder Man is still happening. So what do you think about that? Uh, my best guess there is that they were debating what to can and what not to can, but I think with Deadpool 3 being the only movie on the calendar next year, they might be thinking like, okay, well, maybe we do lean into shows a little bit more next year, and then, you know, 2025 will be our, like, here is kind of what a future years of the MCU might look like. Because mm -hmm. um, I think 2024 year is going to be a bit of an odd year. And yeah. I think that if you're not going to have movies out and you already have part of a show shot, the idea of scrapping that seems less appealing to Disney overall. Like it might seem more like, okay, well let's go ahead. And, and, yeah. and obviously they like Destin. So I think the thing is that like, you probably go, okay, we can't take you off Kang dynasty and scrap your show. <laughs> like you've got this overall deal. So like, I think that's also probably part of it too. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, I think the one thing that's starting to come into focus here is it's very crystal clear that like things are changing at Marvel. Like, like the, a, a lot of the news we're hearing, a lot of the stuff we're hearing, if you start to like move the pieces, puzzle pieces into place, you're seeing that like, no, they're not just resting on their laurels here. They're starting to make active changes. That's, mm -hmm. that's the big thing that's coming into focus for me. Yeah. So Avengers Secret Wars is still on deck for May 7th of 2027. And that is like the big one that you've been pointing to for a long time as like the potential reset and like, you know, use, utilizing the multiverse and being able to sort of like, um, yeah, like push the giant red reset button on the entire MCU. Um, so we're still several years away from that. And this was supposed to be uh, the Kang Dynasty was was supposed to be, uh, the, you know, the next big Avengers movie. I think it's still currently um, set to hit theaters on May 1st, 2026, excuse me, is, is the release date for, for this one. But like you said, there, there's so much like shifting behind the scenes at Marvel. Like, would you be surprised, Ryan, if they just canceled this movie outright or, or, um, I guess I'll, I'll leave it at that first for, uh, for now. I want to ask a follow-up question after that, but what do you think about that? 
Uh, I think that's possible, or that subtitle definitely changes. Yeah, that was my like, follow-up. Like, 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 they, I, they shift the idea of what the, the movie is supposed to be. Yeah, like like you call it something like, you know, you hinted Dr. Doom in the title or something, right? Like, uh, you know, the the uh, Rise of Doom or something. Who the hell knows? <laughs> but, like, but, but, what I, but yeah, I think that... Because I think that what I, my biggest guess is, is that Kang Dynasty, like, you're probably going to need to do a lot of table-setting to get to secret wars you can't just get there so i think that like that movie is probably going to be like a deathly hallows part one type thing where you're just setting the table um and not to say that it won't be interesting in its own right or whatever or whatever they had planned but i i secret wars is such a big undertaking and i think the way that it seems like they're going to do secret wars uh that you just have to set so much up and so mm-hmm. i think that movie might actually be necessary okay. uh so i think that my i would be shocked if they straight up cancel it but uh, but yeah, I think that at the very least, that subtitle is going to change. Have you caught up with Loki season two at all? No, I, I I'm like an episode and a half in, and then I got buried with other stuff. Uh, so I I do intend to watch it because I very much liked the first season of Loki. But okay, uh, yeah. So I I know that that there is implications apparently, um, uh, as to some stuff that happens at the end there that might suggest things but yeah i actually haven't seen the show but i've heard whispers of the the same thing that you just alluded to which is like maybe i mean again and i i don't know the specifics but like i think those whispers have have um implied to me or maybe this is just me reading between the lines uh and again i hope i'm not spoiling anything for for people that like loki survives his own show but like that loki could potentially potentially like slot back in to this villain spot or, or in, into like an, another major role in the MCU if he wants to, despite the fact that Tom Hiddleston has been out on the press tour, basically saying like, I'm done with this character. So, um, you know, we all know that that, that could just be temporary depending on how much money they're going to, they're willing to pay him or they find some great creative deal. Like Hugh Jackman said he was done with Logan and then, uh, or done with playing Wolverine after Logan. And then he's coming back for Deadpool three. So like th- there's precedent for people coming back and stuff too. So, um, anyway, we'll, we'll see how all that shakes out. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you about the, uh, <laughs> the trailer for Madam Webb, Brian, um, Dakota Johnson stars in this movie. Sydney Sweeney is also in it. Uh, JC Shandor, I believe. No, I'm sorry. JC Shandor directed, uh, the, um, Craven the Hunter movie who directed, uh, directed uh, uh uh cj uh sj clarkson who oh, has yeah, been SJ one clarkson. of the bigger tv directors of the last decade um yes. is finally getting to make a feature and this is it yeah she she was um tapped to direct uh a no a new star trek movie at one point that has since fallen apart um and then i think uh some of the folks who wrote on morbius um <laughs> are uh are on board for this madam web script so uh what did you make of this trailer because the internet has really like taken it and run with it there's memes that i'm sure people have seen um about the uh the old like <laughs> you know I, he was in the Amazon with my mom when she was researching spiders right before she died. Like that's become this thing that has like appeared in every conceivable context on the internet already in a very short amount of time. Um, so what do you, what did you make in this Madam Web trailer? Uh, oh boy. Um, yeah, I, I, the one thing I said, cause that became like a meme pretty quickly, like, especially if you're on Twitter. Uh, I, what I said yesterday is I said, if you gave me a million dollars to predict the moment in that trailer that like the internet was going to take off and run with, I would have never gotten that money. Um, but uh, but um, it looks like the most expensive CW show I've ever seen. Like mm. it, lo- it looks like it, it, it. And I know other people have made that comparison, but like it, it, it looks 
it looks like if they if they were doing like a version of like the Arrowverse for the MCU, uh, but like with a much bigger budget. Like I I don't know if that's good or bad. Whatever. Like that's what it looks like to me. Um, it's not the ver- it's not the Madam Web that I know. Like I, yeah. I sort of wrote about this when they cast Dakota Johnson. Like I Madam Web's a cool character. This ain't this ain't Madam Web. Like yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to. T- I mean I understand they're going to change things sometimes, especially Sony is taking a lot of liberties with these characters to be able to make these films work. But um, yeah, I don't you know I don't know. I it, it, uh, look these Sony Spider Man spinoffs have largely not been for me. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I I suspect. Um, I probably this is probably going to land in a similar territory for me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I it seems almost like a guarantee they're trying to set up Sydney Sweeney for a Spider Woman spinoff, and I sure I, I don't know. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I I just I don't have a lot to say that's that's going to be overly positive, but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, with as much as we um, have been harping on Marvel Studios for not having a clear sense of direction and like momentum and propulsiveness that that their uh, all these projects seem to be heading toward in the same way that they clearly did with um you know the first three phases of the MCU uh say what you will about those movies but at least it felt like everything was building to something maybe we may not have known what it was at all times but it like it everything had this sort of pro- propulsive quality to it um the Sony Marvel movies have not had that at all like it just feels like they're these one offs and they they really are i mean it's basically just so Sony can like keep con- uh you know keep um basically just like digging into that pie and like utilizing the uh, the licensing deal that they have and like keep making as much money off of it as possible. They're really like throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks here. And that's what this movie, this trailer feels like. I mean, it, it seems really, really bad to, to put it, <laughs> to put it kindly, I guess. Um, but yeah, it, it, you know what it feels like, Ryan is like Avi Arad is the, uh, the producer. Um, we've mentioned him on the show a couple times. He was one of the big creative voices behind the Sam Raimi Spider-Man uh, trilogy back in the day. And he was involved with a lot of what Marvel was doing uh, before Marvel, Marvel Studios existed. And he had a, a particular style and a particular way of making movies. And they produced, you know, results like uh, the Daredevil with Ben Affleck and like Elektra and you know movies like that. And that's what yeah. Madam Web feels like. It, it feels like Avi Arad, who I believe is still on board as a producer of this film, or maybe an executive producer, is like exerting, you know, uh, um, a bunch of influence over how this project is being made because Kevin Feige and his team at Marvel are not involved with this, right? Right? I mean, like maybe they are in in some secret capacity because there's a Spider-Man cameo that we don't know about or something like that. But I uh, highly doubt it. But I see, yeah, your I, I yeah, do yeah. as well. But um. But yeah, so anyway, this just kind of feels like an Avi Arad joint. So if, if you know people have been paying attention to superhero movies for a long time, you'll know what I mean by that. But uh, well, but also, look, isn't Avi Arad didn't isn't he the one producing the Zelda movie? Yeah, isn't that, yeah, yeah, yeah is. which yes, is like is. so. Boy, that's fascinating. But but yeah, but yeah, he <laughs> but definitely for a guy who's not a director, his movie's definitely like oh that yeah that's got that Avi Arad feel to it. Like it yeah. it, it certainly has a yeah I don't know. Uh, look, a lot of these movies make money. Like the Venom movies have worked out very well for Sony. I I don't know. I'd be curious to find out what the budget of this one is. Because uh, like they kept the one thing about Morbius is that they kept the budget reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think it was like seventy five million or something. Like it actually wasn't too bad. Um, I I don't know. That'll be my thing. Is like do that you know? Because I because I think that like if Venom three comes out and then. Tom Hardy's probably walking away after that. And so I think that like, if this doesn't work, 
then you kind of maybe have an opportunity to sort of like abandon whatever line of direction you're going here. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, did you read the synopsis for Madam Web? No, I didn't. It, it It's very explicit in the beginning. It's like, it tells a standalone story. Like they're actually trying to like, even though it's like a whole team of people, like they're, it seems like they're trying to distance this a bit and be like, Hey, this is just its own thing. Huh. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think maybe there might be an opportunity here moving, like maybe they can, okay. If, if this direction isn't working, we might be able to like retool a bit with whatever we're else, else we're developing from here on out. I don't know, but that's a gotcha. thought. Okay. All right. Well, uh, let's take a break and then I'll come back with uh, one of our Slash Film writers to present an interview with uh, the director of the new movie, Thanksgiving. I am joined now by Slash Film writer, Bill Bria. Greetings and salutations. All right. Welcome, Bill. Um, So I I wanted to ask you, you had the chance to interview Eli Roth, the director of Thanksgiving. What do you think about Eli Roth's filmography? Are you you like a big fan of his work historically? Where, Where do you stand on him? Yeah, uh, he's someone who popped up, I believe, when Cabin Fever was being released. uh, There was a little bit of marketing push in terms of trying to make a connection to him with David Lynch, I think, uh, if I recall. And uh, there was, I don't know what exactly the story was there. I think maybe he worked as his intern for a little bit or something. But I believe maybe Lynch's name was even on the poster of Cabin Fever at one point, but hmm. um, something to that effect. So I think that's what first popped in my mind uh, when I noticed, you know, online seeing articles about Cabin Fever coming out soon and all this. And this was a time, you know, that was, you know, right when I was in college. So it was a time when I was really hungry for new horror uh, because I was starting to get into the old classic horror and really interested in, you know, the sort of new wave that was coming along. And uh, I didn't have a car in college, so I had to beg a friend of mine to borrow their car to go see it by myself. (laughs) Uh, And I was not disappointed. I was really enthused with the way that it was um, really honestly transgressive in terms of I was watching while I was watching it for the first time, didn't know what was going to happen next and didn't know what I was going to see in terms of the gore or kill scenes or, you know, just how far this guy was willing to go. Um, and I think that quality he's managed to retain for pretty much the entirety of his career, even though he doesn't go so far as to be, say, you know, a, a John Waters or even, you know, a Herschel Gordon Lewis or somebody who really pushes the envelope uh, for general audiences in a big way where they go and then they are so repulsed, you know, but mm-hmm. he managed to retain this idea. I mean, if you remember when the hostile movies came out, there was a big uh, ballyhoo around, you know, people fainting or barfing or I don't know, something along <laughs> that line. Uh, so, you know, with each successive release he's had, um, he's maintained this level of notoriety, but also that ballyhoo. And I think what's been really eye-opening for me is that when you get past the ballyhoo, and I find this for most of my favorite horror filmmakers, um, and I wasn't, I wouldn't say necessarily all the greats cause some, you know, not so greats do it too, but, uh, I think, you know, Eli happens to be a pretty great filmmaker in my estimation, um, for horror. And, uh, you know, what I've really responded to in his work over the years is that when I watched the hostile movies, for example, you know, that was during this whole torture porn wave of, you know, Oh, so evil that these movies exist. But I was really taken aback, uh, taken, you know, back in a good way by their social commentary in them. And I've been impressed the longer he's gone, uh, watching him go through stuff like, um, at the house with the clock in its walls, which I found honestly very enchanting, you know, and, mm-hmm. and really it had the, 
the frisson of uh, something kind of a little bit transgressive for, you know, a family film, a kid's film without going obviously too far. Yeah, that's uh, a movie from a few years ago that starred Jack Black and Kate Blanchett in case people don't like immediately recognize the name of that one. But yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, it, it did seem to kind of get lost in the shuffle a little bit. Um, but uh, hopefully people can rediscover it as, as things goes on, because I think it stands up next to, you know, something like Goosebumps, you know, pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So I think that what's been interesting about Thanksgiving, obviously, there was the the Grindhouse trailer, uh, fake trailer, faux trailer uh, that was part of the, you know, Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez project in 2007, which uh, also got swept under the rug when it first came out but mm-hmm. um you know it, it gained a lot of notoriety on you know uh film geek circles and everything like that and you know part of the excitement of the movie was all these fake trailers of oh my gosh wouldn't it be great if that was a real movie um and you know eli's been vocal in the past and, and present about that thanksgiving trailer being something that you couldn't necessarily ever live up to because the idea of a fake trailer is hey we have the freedom to go super far here and don't have to make up a plot at all. So, you know, let's just go crazy and, you know, make something that looks so sleazy and awful that like, you know, who would ever want to watch that? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet that ironically created this appetite for it that people have been wanting it <laughs> since it came out uh, as part of the Grindhouse. So it's interesting to realize, oh, he hasn't ever made in his career yet a full throated slasher. Um, Cause even though, you know, horror movies you know, in general have a lot of, overlap and they share a lot of uh common traits there's you know set pieces there's kill scenes whether you're talking about a slasher or a demonic possession movie what have you so i think it's been interesting that you know oh well this is kind of you know a big a little bit of a big deal that he's finally getting around to doing a full full-blooded slasher yeah so you mentioned the um the other grindhouse trailers and one of them was machete for example so i was just curious what you think about how the movie thanksgiving stands up to you know the other projects that have spilled out of uh of the effect of um grindhouse yeah um well it's interesting that you know hobo with a shotgun and machete and machete kills to to a little bit of a lesser extent but still there they really obviously wanted to maintain and and continue this quote-unquote grindhouse aesthetic uh and carry that forward um and you know this is not a uh interview or podcast about robert rodriguez but rodriguez definitely seems like the scrappy kind of, you know, low budget dude to be like, oh, I'm, I'm committing to the bit, you know, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, whereas this Eli Roth Thanksgiving, the full length feature, uh, as you'll hear shortly in my interview, but also if you, you know, read other things that he's talking about, uh, about the movie in the press, he wasn't really interested in continuing that aesthetic forward. And I know that's initially a disappointment to some people because, oh, we've waited so long for this. Oh, I wanted to see that crazy you know, dinner table scene with all the grunge and the whatever they're doing to that turkey person and everything like that. (laughs) (laughs) But and and uh, I won't no spoilers, but there's a a dinner table scene in the movie. So don't worry, you're not going to be completely (laughs) let down. But in terms of you, if you were looking to for it to have that, you know, really, oh, my gosh, this is just like a movie from 1981. And oh, it looks like it was run through the back of a gutter or something. Um, You know, you're not going to get that. And I think Eli has been vocal about why he didn't want that because a you know it was hard for them to figure out a plot around all of these crazy bits that they you know made up for the trailer um that wasn't just boring you know it wasn't just okay we're waiting for the next kill that sort of thing mm-hmm. and then b um you know time has passed pretty long enough that even grindhouse itself the movie grindhouse you know is is a little bit in dimmer memory for general audiences so you don't want it to feel like i think what eli wants and this is me you know putting on to him so this is not from his mouth but i think what he wants is that 
he wants this to be potentially its own franchise if possible and not so beholden to the grindhouse if you can call it a franchise Mm -hmm. yeah yeah certainly um okay so what do people need to know about this interview i i mean i think you you uh to use a phrase from thanksgiving set the table pretty well there already but was there anything that you wanted to highlight about this conversation before folks listen to it uh yeah just uh the fact that well there's two things that really stood out to me which you'll hear one is uh that um you know well actually i'll I'll say a couple things one is that making a slasher is obviously you know no picnic uh to go with the food metaphor uh (laughs) so there there was there was some hardships i mean i i love hearing stories about how you know the practical effects are handled and he has a story here which he doesn't give as a spoiler so we don't know which kill he's talking about but apparently there was a kill that he almost had to scrap because they just couldn't pull it off until the very last minute Mm -hmm. um and then I think the other, well, there's the other thing is that I talked to him about some of his social commentary in his films, and he did surprisingly and, and pleasingly to my ear uh, go off on what Thanksgiving holiday means to him in terms of how it's become more of a shopping, you know, extravaganza holiday as opposed to any sort of, you know, gratitude holiday or even, you know, reflecting on American history holiday, which, you know, probably more people should do given its origins but uh yep. yeah it's it's something that's you know now become just one big uh black friday ad so he's he talks a lot about that and then lastly i find his films pretty consistently from cabinet fever on down to be uh fun and you know even when they're being transgressive and being gross they have this element of sort of wicked humor to them and uh surprisingly he's not a proponent of comedy horror which is a little ironic but he has his reasons and i think uh you know people will be interested to hear what those reasons are Cool. All right. Well, let's listen to Bill's interview with Eli Roth. Congratulations on the film. I, I saw it last week and had a blast with it. Um, I first uh, wanted to ask, you've, you've made a, a wide variety of films from big budget to smaller budget. Was approaching this sort of more classic slasher easier, more fun, as sort of scrappy, or was it just as challenging since you had, I think, a year to make this? It was very tough. I mean, look, this is, this is the kind of movie where I only could have made uh, had I not you know, with having made all my others because it was low budget. The schedule was really tight. It was, we shot the whole thing in 35 days. So we had to fully nail it. Um, we had to really, really nail it on the day. And it was, uh, every single day was a challenge and we had, um, we had an amazing time doing it, but you know, every movie is tough in its own way. And this one was certainly no exception, but it's the kind of film I could have only made, uh, after I made all the others. For sure. Uh, you have a great cast in this movie, a uh, really cool ensemble. And when you're casting a slasher like this that has the whodunit element, how much thought is going into casting for more of the archetypes in terms of, you know, suspicious looking suspects versus, you know, more non-suspicious people to throw people off or people that can scream, you know, final girl qualities. Is that a consideration for you when you're casting this or is it more just to character? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, you want to, we want to follow all the conventions of the genre. There are certain things I just absolutely love about the genre. Um, You know, and the final girl is no exception. And when Nell Verlack auditioned, we thought, She's she's so sympathetic. She's so sweet and nice. She's vulnerable. She's beautiful. She has this young Julia Roberts quality and you just root for her. You want her to make it. And she's smart. And it's fun to watch how how is she going to get out of these situations where someone with a weapon could easily physically overpower her? What is she going to do to stay one step ahead? And a film that does that really well is Mute Witness, the Anthony Waller film. I love Mm. that movie so much. 
Um, and I had Nell watch it and I went to, you know, with a, a screening of it with my DP, which actually ran before we started shooting. Um, it's one of my favorite films where the cat and mouse is so well done. Um, but yeah, there's, you, you want to make sure that the guys are similar enough in certain features that you believe the red herrings work. Um, and then sometimes an actor comes in who was supposed to be a suspect in the script, but they physically just don't match, but they're so funny or so good <laughs> that you're just like, all right, I'm willing to lose this person as a plausible suspect because I'm enjoying the performance so much. Oh, that's great. I love that. Um, this may be getting into slight spoiler territory, so you can you can talk about specifics or not, but I was just curious if you know for the film what the hardest kill to pull off was, whether it was from a, a conceptual level or a logistical level or effects or even the editing. Um, do you have one of those for this movie? Well, every every kill is tricky in its own way, you know, and we're going for practical effects, oh, which yeah. means that it's going to be a huge reset, a huge cleanup if it doesn't go right. And often it doesn't. Um, and there was one in particular where there were the blood tubes kept getting tangled and the blood wasn't spraying right. And the prosthetic wasn't, you know, kind of splitting in the right way. Um, and we just kept doing it. It was really hard. We're like, and then we're getting closer and closer and closer to the end of the shoot. I'm like, man, I really, I might not have this kill. Hmm. And then it finally all came together on that last take. And you just can finally breathe because with a movie like this, it really is about the kills. The kills have to work. The movie doesn't work. Um, but that opening riot sequence was probably the most complicated sequence I've ever had to stage and deal with in my life. We shot the whole thing in four nights, Wow, two nights outside, two nights inside. And it was insanity, but the cast is amazing. Extras were incredible. Fantastic stunt team led by Dan Skeen, our stunt coordinator and Adrian Moreau and the, prosthetic effects and Steve Newburn um, makeup out of Toronto. So it was a really, a really, really great, uh, great team doing it. We pulled it off. That's awesome. And I, I absolutely agree that the kills are fantastic. Uh, you have some really great social commentary through all your films. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Hostel Part 1 and 2, but even, you know, obviously stuff like Green Inferno like, and, of course, Knock Knock. Um, Thanksgiving is a weird holiday, I feel, in American culture. It still kind of is, and you kind of touch upon that in this movie. Um, I was curious to know what your view is on the holiday. What aspects of it did you want to get across in this? I mean, I grew up in Massachusetts, so Thanksgiving was a huge, huge deal. So to me, my relationship is going to be different than other people's because we there's two separate pilgrim recreation villages you go to. Mm. Um, I remember doing a play when I was eight years old about the Native Americans feeding the pilgrims, and I actually took it over. Like, I remember that I was telling the guy, I was like, well, why would I enter with a box of supplies from here? I would like, I should be doing that. He's like, fine. Like, I actually took over directing the play. It's a little bossy eight-year-old. Um, so, you know, in the Thanksgiving parade, it's a huge deal in Massachusetts. Um, and with, for us, look, I don't celebrate Christmas. So for us, Thanksgiving was the big holiday of the fall season. You know, you go home, you watch football, you're having dinner, you're seeing your friends from high school. It was, it was a great holiday. And it has slowly become completely infected and overrun by Black Friday sales for Christmas. Mm. My phone now, every hour is getting spammed with black friday sale black friday sale there's no holiday anymore it's just about black friday so i really wanted to you know make a movie about the black friday bleeding over and this idea that we all say we're so thankful and just run out and trample each other for electronics and waffle irons <laughs> but i think there's a an even there's something even darker underneath which is that the people at the top that are 
benefiting from all of this aren't paying anybody. They haven't increased the minimum wage. No one's making a living wage anymore. Mm. So everybody is forced to compete in these gladiator games because it's the only chance they can get to get the electronics and to get the things for their kids for Christmas. So I think there's a real sickness there Mm. that there's no middle class anymore and that people, it's not about going to a sale and getting something on sale that these, it's these gladiator games where everybody has to crush each other to get it. Otherwise they won't be able to afford it. So I think that that, that to me is the real kind of ill underneath society. But I, I think that, uh, you know, what was once this great holiday that I loved that as a kid was so important to me, um, has just been turned into gladiator games for waffle irons. Absolutely. No, that's really great. Um, I, I wanted to talk for a second about your relationship to humor in your films, just cause I do think there's a through line from pancakes and cabin fever all the way to the cat in this. How do you, because I don't, I wouldn't consider you a comedy horror guy necessarily, but you always have an element of humor in your movies and it's so welcome. Do you try and bake that in or does it just sort of happen naturally on set? Like, where does that come into your yeah. process? Thanks. I, yeah, I, I, I don't think comedy horror necessarily works. I feel like it's very limited and that you don't satisfy either. It's never scary enough to be a horror movie. It's never funny enough to be a comedy. But I do believe that you can have humor as a release valve in a horror film. And I think the best example of that is Scream, where it's not a comedy, but the characters are fun characters and lively. And that is life. Not everyone is drab and serious all the time. And when you have a cast like we had, where every single person is funny, you just lean into it. So there's characters we write that we know are funny, like McCarty, mm-hmm. and then other ones that just bring a certain flair to it that the way they say a line is hilarious. Uh, like Scuba, when he's like, McCarty, do you have any human-sized guns? Like, just, you get a laugh <laughs> just from that. So I'm... As long as it's real and it's in character and it makes sense in the situation, I feel like if I was in this situation, would I make that joke? Yes. Then I put it in the movie. And sometimes you go too far. In the editing, you're like, this person has so many one-liners, they seem like they're the star of the movie. I'm like, all right, we got to pull that back. So you can have too much of it, and it can start to take away from your lead character. Um, So that's something I'm very mindful of, but also... I want the, the kills to be fun. I want the kills to be awesome and amazing and brutal, but they're also a setup for the ones that are like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. That was rough. You know, sometimes if you have a kill that's just left of center and is slightly ridiculous, the audience loves it. They applaud. It's great. I think it allows them to enjoy the violence if it's just a little bit skewed and a little bit insane. Absolutely. Well, that's perfect. And and thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thanks for the film. Now I have something to watch every Thanksgiving for my slasher fix. So thank you. Very cool. Nice to meet you. You as well. All right. That was great. Thanks, Bill. And uh, I wanted to give you the opportunity to tell people where they can find more of your work online before we wrap things up. So where can people track you down? Uh, you can track me down on all social media apps uh, at Bill Bria, B-I-L-L-B-R-I-A. And uh, if you want to read more of my work specifically, you can check out slashfilm.com uh, as well as billbria.contently.com. Excellent. All right. Thanks, Bill. Uh, you can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes for this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next week.